So Jeremiah 2, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem, thus says the Lord. I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the firstfruits of his harvest. All who ate of it incurred guilt. Disaster came upon them, declares the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob and all the clans of the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, What wrong did your fathers find in me, that they went far from me, and went after worthlessness and became worthless? They did not say, Where is the Lord who brought us up from the land of Egypt, who led us in the wilderness, in a land of deserts and pits, in a land of drought and deep darkness, in a land that none passes through, where no man dwells? And I brought you into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruits and its good things. But when you came in, you defiled my land, made my heritage an abomination. The priest did not say, where is the Lord? Those who handled the Lord did not know me. The shepherds transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and went after things that do not profit. Therefore, I still contend with you, declares the Lord, and with your children's children, I will contend. For cross to the coast of Cyprus and see, or send to Kedar and examine with care. See if there has been such a thing. Has a, nation, Nathan, has a nation changed its gods, even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Is Israel a slave? Is he a home-born servant? Why then has he become a prey? The lions have roared against him. They have roared loudly. They have made his land a waste. His cities are in ruins without inhabitant. Moreover, the men of Memphis and Tephanus have shaved the crown of your head. Have you not brought this upon yourself by forsaking the Lord your God when he led you in the way? And now what do you gain by going to Egypt to drink the waters of the Nile? Or what do you gain by going to Assyria to drink the waters of the Euphrates? Your evil will chastise you and your apostasy will reprove you. Know and see that it is evil and bitter for you to forsake the Lord your God. The fear of me is not in you, declares the Lord God of hosts. So far, Jeremiah, and we turn over to the New Testament, John 4, verse 1 to 15. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptising more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptise but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, 
was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I'll give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. So far the reading. And then the text for this morning is back to Jeremiah 2, verse 12 and 13. And we'll read that again. Where Jeremiah says, Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declared the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So far the reading of God's word. In response to the preaching, we'll sing hymn 73, all verses. Beloved brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, what do you do when things are taking a turn for the worst? You've had a hard day and you need a release. You need some comfort. Where do you go? What do you do? Of course, the pious answer we want to give in church is that we go to the Lord in prayer. Obviously, we lay all our burdens and all our troubles before him and cast our daily burdens on him. That's the answer we're supposed to give. The reality is sometimes different, isn't it? Perhaps it's even often different. Let's be honest. For some people, the real answer has to do with substances. For some people, they run to food for comfort. Some people get comfort from eating, especially certain types of food. But they're not eating that food in moderation, but eating excessively. For others, it's alcohol. Some people run to the bottle after a hard day or a stressful situation. Again, not taking just one drink and leaving at that, but overdoing it every single time. The alcohol is what's given them the solace. Still, for other people, it's tobacco, cigarettes. Smoking is what eases their stress every day. These are all common substances that people turn to for help in relieving stress. More could be added. For others, the real answer has to do with exercise. For some people, they literally run for comfort or pursue other forms of exercise to excess. Some derive their comfort from seeing the numbers drop on the scale every single time. If the numbers don't drop, they're just not happy. The scale dictates whether they'll be content that day. There's no comfort or joy 
unless their weight is under control. Still for others, the real answer has to do with the pursuit of material things. Maybe you've heard of retail therapy. Some people get their therapy through shopping and buying more and more stuff. I've had a hard day, they say, so I need to go shopping and buy some clothes. Then what about the elephant in the room? You knew I wasn't going to mention this one too. If I don't mention it, there will very well be a bunch of people breathing a sigh of relief. Oh, I don't do any of these things. I don't drink excessively, don't smoke, don't eat like a glutton. I'm not an exercise fanatic. I'm not a shopaholic. Fuel, this isn't about me. Well, let's talk about what happens on your computer when no one's around. Or let's talk about what's going on with your smartphone. There is a very common form of stress relief taking place online. Many people flee to pornography for comfort, both men and women. You might be thinking, but we're Christians. We would never do any of that stuff. We're in the church and we know better. Loved ones, that would be a very naive way of responding. People who confess the name of Christ can and do flee to all these types of different comforts. The Bible has a special name for this. It's called idolatry. An idol is anything in your life that is meant to replace what the true God will and can do. Anything you're turning to for comfort, strength and stress relief instead of God is an idol. It could be one of those things I mentioned, but there are lots of others too. Sometimes our idols are a little more refined and respectable and therefore a little harder to detect and let go of. There are so many different types of idols and we can take anything in God's good creation and turn it into an idol. John Calvin once said that we are idol factories and Calvin was exactly right. Our text this morning addresses this common human problem. It doesn't speak about the idolatry of the nations. It's not addressed to the Babylonians or the Assyrians and their worship of all kinds of false gods. Instead, this text is speaking directly to the church, to the people of God in the days of Jeremiah. It was the church where these idols were being pursued, not the world. So a text like this also speaks to us in the church today, some millennia later. While our idolatries might be different in some ways, the root problems are still the same and the solution is still the same. The solution is to see clearly what our idols really are and what our idols really offer us. In his grace, our God gives us the true picture of what idols are all about here in Jeremiah. So I preach to you God's word. God's word teaches you here that all your idols are utterly empty and foolish. We'll see how God exposes the twofold evil of forsaking the fountain of living water and two, building your own cistern. Let's firstly briefly situate ourselves in the world of our text. The prophet Jeremiah carried out his ministry about 600 years before the Lord Jesus Christ. After King David came his son King Solomon. After Solomon there was Rehoboam. Under Rehoboam the kingdom of Israel split into two, a northern kingdom Israel and a southern kingdom Judah. Almost the whole history from that point forward was dark. Wicked king after wicked king took the throne in both kingdoms. There were a few exceptions. 
We think of Hezekiah and Josiah. But this period from about 900 to 600 before Christ was generally characterised by unbelief and apostasy, turning away from God. The word of God was completely forgotten. It happened at every level of Israelite society. Not only were the regular people worshipping idols, but also the prophets, the priests and the kings. This rampant idol worship among the Israelite leadership is also evident in our reading from Jeremiah 2. The idolatry took different forms. Obviously, God's people worshipped the gods of the nations. There were a few that they were especially attracted to. Baal was the Canaanite sky god, a god of fertility. Baal was very useful. By worshipping Baal, you could hope for good crops and prosperity. Ashtoreth or Asherah was another local deity. She was also associated with fertility and was sometimes worshipped with Baal, a male and female god team. These types of idol worship were not only useful, but also fun because they involved sexual immorality. They would have pagan temples for these gods and these would include temple prostitutes. One way of really getting the attention of the gods was by sleeping with the temple prostitutes. If the gods saw you being fertile with the prostitutes, the gods would be more inclined to bestow fertility on your farm. That's the way the thinking went. It's not coincidental that this idol worship tied into the natural human inclination towards sexual immorality. Sexual immorality just naturally befits paganism. And the idol worship in the days of Jeremiah was not restricted to Baal and Ashtoreth. The people had replaced the true God with all kinds of things. One thing you come across in the prophets of this era repeatedly is the tendency of the people to place their trust in political allegiances rather than in the Lord. Another thing you come across is their enormous pride. Pride is also a form of idolatry, the idolatry of self. I am to be worshipped and adored. Yes, the people of God had countless idols. They were idol factories. Jeremiah 2 verse 28 says, For as many as your cities are your gods, O Judah. Now it's true that in Jeremiah 2 you do find Baal mentioned specifically a couple of times. In verse 8 the prophets prophesied by Baal. In verse 23 though, God speaks to the people who say, I have not gone after the Baals. Baal was sometimes used as a representative of all idols. Baal stands in for all of them, for everything that God's people were turning to instead of God. Now remember that Baal was the sky god. He was the one supposed to be in control of the sky, the heavens. That makes it rather ironic that God calls upon the skies or the heavens to witness against his people in verse 12 of our text. If we go and look back at verse 9, we hear the language of a lawsuit between God and his people. When God says that he is contending with his people, that's legal talk in the Old Testament. He's pressing a covenant lawsuit against his people. And the witness he calls is the heavens in verse 12. There's irony in that. The irony being that the heavens are supposed to be in Baal's control. There's also history behind that. In Deuteronomy 4, God covenanted with Israel as they were about to enter into the promised land. He warned them about unbelief and idolatry. 
If they were to turn away from him, they would face consequences. He called witnesses. Deuteronomy 4 verse 26 says, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish from the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. All the idolatry of the people of God has been done under God's blue sky and now he calls it to the witness stand. The Lord Yahweh says, Look, you blue sky, look at what these people have done. You should be horrified, stupefied. Let your hair stand on end at what's happening with these people. This is insane. There is reason for shock and horror at what Israel is doing. Then he says that his people have committed two astounding evils. Before looking at these two evils, take note of the exact words at the beginning of verse 13. This is key. He says, My people have committed two evils. The covenant connection between God and his people is acknowledged here. These are not generic human beings out there in the world. These are the descendants of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. These are the people that God covenanted with in the days of Moses. He has a relationship with them. He is their God and they are his people. He faithfully recognises them and that that they don't. They are denying the reality, their covenant relationship to him. But he will not. He goes after his people and he holds his people to account. In this we see God's love and God's grace. Even though the words are abrasive, harsh and difficult to hear, it's a God who loves his people, who goes after them to confront them with their evil. It's a twofold evil. The first evil is they have forsaken God, the fountain of living waters. Let's first look at the picture used here. Water is valuable everywhere, but especially in a semi-arid climate like that of Israel. We turn on the tap and we have a ready supply of water. No one thinks much about it here. But if you lived in a place where water is hard to come by, you'd probably think differently about it. Water could even be a daily concern. In ancient times, there were several different places where one could hope for water. But the best and most reliable source of water would be a spring. If you were a farmer, you had a spring on your property, you were set. The spring would provide you and your animals with the best possible water. Flowing from that spring or fountain would be a pure stream of the best tasting water. That's the image that God uses for himself here in our text. He says that he is the fountain of living waters for his people. It's a beautiful image and it's used elsewhere in scripture. Living waters is simply an ancient way of saying flowing water. It's not standing water like water from a pond, but it's flowing, living from a spring or fountain. This type of water is the best for sustaining life. It's also the most pleasant water you can find. Moreover, it's reliable. It doesn't stop. It provides an abundance of water year round. The true God is the fountain of living water, brothers and sisters. For his people who look to him, he promised to be the true source of life, not only in the physical and material sense, but also in the spiritual sense. In every way, God promises to supply you life. What comes from him is altogether good. In fact, it is the best. What comes from him is safe. 
What God gives is not for your harm, but for your good. Moreover, there is true pleasure and joy available from the true God. When believers look to God in faith, he will be a fountain of living waters to them. That is who our God is. He has always been that for his people who trust in him. When we read these words, we also can't fail to make the connection to John 4. Our Saviour has that encounter with the Samaritan woman at the well. Deep down at the bottom somewhere, the well has some living water. The well was fed by a spring as it had been for thousands of years before this, but it was pretty much impossible to get direct access to that living water. The well was not exactly a source of living water. Jesus told the woman that he could give her living water. She was confused because she thought of the well in front of her. But our Lord Jesus worked with the language of Jeremiah and said that he is the one who fulfills these words. He is the divine fountain of living water that anyone can access. If you look to Christ in faith, you have life. If you look to Christ in faith, you have safety and eternity. If you look to Christ in faith, you have joy. Everything that living water can supply in a limited sense for the physical human body, Jesus can supply in the fullest sense for the entire person forever. The Israelites in the time of Jeremiah knew these things in a shadowy way. They knew that God was the eternal source of life, security and joy. They'd heard the promise of a future Redeemer. The full revelation of how all this fit together would have to wait. Yet they had enough to know that they should be committed to Yahweh in faith. They had many reasons to do so. One of the greatest reasons was how the Lord had led them out of Egypt into the promised land. In the wilderness, he had given their fathers everything they needed for life, including water. Repeatedly, the true God had proven himself to be the fountain of living water. But they forgot all that. They forsook him. That language speaks of covenant breaking. It speaks of unbelief and apostasy. Even though Yahweh had loved them so dearly, had taken such care of them through the centuries, they slapped him in the face and turned their backs on him. They turned their backs on the one who was the fountain of living water. Why would anyone want to do that, especially a covenant child who knows better? Why would you forsake a God who can give you abundant life? Why would you turn away from one who can keep you safe today and into eternity? Why would you even do that even for a moment? Why would you abandon Yahweh when living in fellowship with him can bring you such joy? All these questions highlight for us again the irrationality of sin. Sin is foolish, brothers and sisters. All sin, not just idolatry. All sin is just plain stupid. When you look at it in the light of God's word, sin just doesn't add up. It makes no sense. We can look at the Israelites in our text and we can shake our heads at them for their failure to see what they are losing out on by abandoning God for their idols. But are we any less prone to do different? Have we ever forsaken the fountain of living waters? I know I have in many ways, and I'm sure you all have too. 
Let's be humble and see this as shining a light on all our sins of unbelief and idolatry too. Our idolatry is even more blameworthy or culpable because we as the covenant children of God know of Christ and the gospel of living water in him. If you know Christ as the fountain of living water, why would you turn away from him? Why? It's so senseless. Let's see that right now. Let's see it clearly as the foolishness that it is. Let's hate it with a holy hatred and be freshly committed to the fountain of living waters, to our God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Loved ones, let us also be encouraged to know that as we see our sin for what it is and learn to hate it and flee from it, we have a Redeemer in our Lord Jesus Christ. We have his perfect obedience in us. In all his life, he never forsook the fountain of living waters. He lived in immaculate fellowship with God, looking to him always for safety, strength and security. That peerless obedience is yours when you believe in him. There's forgiveness too in Christ. There's God's grace and forgiveness every time that you have forsaken the fountain of living waters. When your Saviour died on the cross, he died to cover all those foolish moments when you strayed from the source of life. Brothers and sisters, be encouraged to know that all your sins are covered through him. Only repent of these sins and embrace this Saviour and you can be assured of forgiveness for this evil. He is the fountain of living waters and he promises to bless you eternally with life, security and joy. So the first part of the evil exposed in our text is forsaking the fountain of living waters. The flip side of that is the second part, building your own cistern. Once again, some cultural background is helpful to understand the picture here. Depending on where you live, urban or rural, you might not be familiar with cisterns. Basically, a cistern is a giant holding tank for water. In ancient Israel, these giant holding tanks or cisterns were built in the ground. When it would rain, water would flow off the roof of the house, be directed into the cistern. The cistern would have a lid on it to prevent the water from evaporating. As I mentioned, there were several ways of attempting to secure, so to secure access to water in ancient Israel. The cistern was the least desirable. Cisterns had numerous problems and these problems meant that the water was unreliable, often unsafe and typically not pleasant to drink. Remember, the water would come off the roofs of houses, the rain would fall on these clay roofs and then come into the cistern. But along the way, the water would pick up some of the clay and other dirt and garbage that might be on the roof. Would you want to drink the rainwater that comes off your gutters? The water in a cistern would have the colour of weak soap suds and it would taste earthy or even like a barn. It would be full of insect larvae. For instance, mosquitoes are known for finding their way into cisterns to lay their eggs. If not squirming larvae in your water, you might very well have a cup full of green algae. Yum. Sounds good, doesn't it? Then there were parasites. Because of contamination with all kinds of stuff, there will often be parasites in cistern water. If you've ever had Guardia, 
you would know that there's nothing to mess with. Parasites and water can kill you or make you very sick for a long time. But we haven't talked about the biggest problem with cisterns in ancient Israel. These cisterns were dug in the ground and then plastered on the inside. But because Israel is an active seismic area, there are often tremors and earthquakes. They're not usually big enough to cause extensive destruction, but they will crack and break your cisterns. If your cistern is cracked, one morning you'll go out, lift the lid, and all your water be gone. All you're left with is an empty, muddy hole in the ground. Sooner or later, it would happen to any cistern. So ancient cisterns could be sources of death and disease. To provide water from them, you depended on rainfall. The path of the rainwater to the cistern would make the water taste horrible. To make matters worse, these cisterns could easily break and then you'd be without water, again facing death. No one in their right mind would choose a cistern over a spring of running water. Why would you choose this disgusting source of water when it will sooner or later fail you or maybe even kill you? Yet this is exactly what the people of Israel did in the days of Jeremiah. The second part of their twofold evil was that they hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. They had the fountain of living waters, but that wasn't what they wanted. They turned away from the fountain and built cisterns for themselves. They built their own source of water, or what they thought could provide them with water, which is life. As it turned out, their cistern broke. They might have provided some water for a while, but eventually the cisterns did what cisterns do best. They failed. These cisterns could no longer provide anything to sustain life. Even when they did provide some water, the water they provided was disgusting and unsafe. But the people couldn't see that. They didn't want to see that. They would rather have the disgusting and unsafe cistern water than the pleasant and life-giving water from the fountain. Do you see the picture that's really been painted here? It's a picture of what idolatry is really like. It tells us several things about idolatry. It tells us that idolatry is a human creation. The people in Israel, they built the cisterns for themselves. People make idols. They do it with existing things. What makes an idol is what someone does with it. For example, food is not an idol in and of itself. Food is a good gift of God. But it becomes an idol when you use it to replace God as your source of comfort and strength. Anything becomes an idol when you begin to use it as a substitute for God. But it's the human activity which makes it an idol. Next, it tells us that idolatry can provide some semblance of water for a while. Cisterns don't always break right away. For a while, our idols can appear to provide some comfort and superficial joy and pleasure at some level. This is what lures you in. If there were no payback at all, at any time, no one would ever worship idols. Think about it. The drinker gets drunk. Those who use pornography get a release. On it goes. There's always something to pull you in. Every idol has its draw, and if it didn't, no one would fall for it. 
However, the water these cisterns provide cannot be trusted to keep you healthy and safe. Even though idols can't give some kind of payback, eventually they demand a cost from you too. They'll infect you with spiritual parasites. They will suck the spiritual life out of you. Idols will poison you and all your relationships. And in the end, they ultimately kill you. They demand more and more from you. They take more and more. And the payback becomes less and less. This is the pathology of idolatry. It's how it works. It draws you in, then it kills you. Ultimately, these systems that we create for ourselves fail utterly, destroying you and others in the process. Any system you make for yourself will crack and fail and be empty. Idols will not be there for you in the long run. This is so important for us to see, brothers and sisters. Someday you'll be on your deathbed. Maybe you'll be at home, maybe in the hospital or in an old age home. Think about it. What good will your idols be to you then? What can they offer at the end? You see, when you look at it in that perspective, all your idolatry is totally foolish. It's going to do you zero good as you face eternity. Zero good. All idols are broken cisterns. They're empty and they'll do nothing for you in the ultimate sense. As you face eternity, idols have nothing to offer you. Moreover, moreover, you don't know when you'll be looking at eternity in the face. There are those who say, I agree, I should give up my idols, but I'm young and healthy. I've got lots of time. My author lived to be 88, and I'll probably live to be at least that. I can do it later. But listen, you may not have a later. You don't know the hours and the minutes of your life. You don't know when you're going to face God. Loved ones, now is the time to see the utter emptiness and foolishness of idols and give them all up. You may not have a tomorrow. God is calling you right now and his call is urgent. You have to take God seriously. So let me ask you, how much more of your life are you going to waste with idols? How long before you see they are broken cisterns? Doesn't the word show you that right now Right at this very moment, don't you see it with me? This is the true picture of your idols. It's meant to drive us away from broken systems we created for ourselves. It's meant to drive us into the open arms of our Saviour, our Lord Jesus, who provided for us. Jesus holds us out, living waters that can truly save and that can truly satisfy. Loved ones, the word is holding out to us. The picture of a saviour who can be everything to, everything to you and bring you true, true joy forever. He has perfect obedience for you in his life. He has forgiveness for you in his suffering and death. He has loving compassion for you as your great high priest. Idols will ultimately slay you. It doesn't matter what the idol is. I've mentioned several in this sermon now, I've surely missed a few. Maybe I even missed yours. If you're honest with yourself, you'll know what the idols in your life are, where your broken cisterns are. Whatever it is, or wherever it is, see that this broken cistern is simply not going to give you life. It's empty and foolish, and it will totally destroy you in the end. 
The Saviour, on the other hand, has come to give you life and give it to you abundantly. Brother, sister, turn from this foolish sin and turn to the fountain of living waters in faith. Doing that, you will be confident of spending eternity in God's presence where we will drink from the fountain forever, enjoying that abundant life always. Amen.